The scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, David. The Lord is with you. I also want to extend greetings to those who are worshiping with us for the first time, those of you who are with us online watching, and for those of you who are here with us today. This morning, we consider the third question in our summer series, the questions Jesus asked. Would you, again, take a moment just to pray with me? Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you also, if you would, to pick up a copy of that pew Bible that's in front of you, and if you would turn to page 801, I just want you to notice something before we move into our text. So, page 801 in the New Testament, and we're looking for Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. That's Matthew chapter 20 verses 17 through 19, and then we'll consider the text that David just read. That's on page 801 in our Pew Bible. So Matthew 20, 17 through 19, while Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. And of course, when I read this, I wondered to myself, what is Jesus doing because already this is the third time that he's pulled the disciples aside and told them this very grim, grim accounting of what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. This is the third and the final time. And I'm asking myself, is Jesus having something of a martyr's complex? Is Jesus trying to be sensational? And of course, the answer is no. He wants to make sure that the disciples are clear in their minds as to what will happen to him 
and how they needed to be equipped and be prepared for the aftermath of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then if you look now at verse 20, so we've read all the way through 19, look at verse 20, and we see this line, then. Then, it could have been the same day, it could have been days after, we're not sure, but then, after Jesus tells him that grim tale, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, and I underlined in my text, with her sons. And she took the position of a penitent, bowing the knee, offering a request, and this is what she asked of him. In verse 21, she said, declare, you have the authority, Lord, so declare that these two sons of mine will sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. I don't know about you, but today we would describe Mrs. Zebedee's request as awkward. It's awkward. And the best way I can describe it is if I came to you and told you very sadly that I have about one more week to live on this earth. And the next day, you come back to me and you said, well, you know about that thing you told me about dying? Could you give me your parking spot downtown? I mean, that's as awkward and as tone deaf as it sounds, at least in my mind. Jesus has just opened his heart. He has just solemnly opened his heart to his disciples. And then the mother of James and John shows up with a request. Now, I've been asking more questions about this text. Is this a case of a parent wanting to do anything for her children? Is this a case of children pressuring a parent to do something for them? What's happening here? Who's responsible for this awkward moment? Is it the mom or is it her sons? Well, there are some things to note that I find very helpful and maybe not so helpful about her request. What I find helpful about her request is that she got it right. She believes that Jesus, Team Jesus, is the right team for her sons to join, that his kingdom is indeed coming and he will reign. And I went back to Matthew 19, the very next chapter, and I looked at verse 28, and Jesus did say to them, so you can't blame the lady, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I don't blame Mrs. Zebedee for wanting the best for her children. Many of you here are parents. I'm a parent, and I want the same. I want the best for my children. But there's something that's not so helpful about her request. And uh, it really shows how much Mrs. Zebedee and her sons had missed the mark. They thought that Christ's coming kingdom would be a replacement for the Roman Empire. And Jesus wants them to know that my kingdom will look nothing like this very tawdry, time-bound Roman Empire that you're witnessing. Something that's not so helpful if she's being a helicopter parent. 
if she's just leveraging this opportunity to get her sons into a better place, then that's not very good. And then maybe it's not very helpful because when Jesus gave the promise that you all will sit on 12 thrones, clearly meant it for all the disciples, and if she's thinking that her sons should be valued more highly than the other 10 disciples, then she is not accurate in her assessment of her children. The reality is Peter, James, and John were already part of Jesus' inner circle. Jesus knew them. He knew every one of them. He knew their foibles. He knew their, their failures, their weaknesses, and he knew they weren't ready for prime time. And on the night of his arrest, one of the disciples betrayed him, as you know the story very well. One from his inner circle, and I guess that's what we need to see. One from Jesus' inner circle denied him, not once, not twice, but three times. And then all the disciples, when it was all said and done, when they arrested him and took him away, all the disciples deserted him for fear of their lives. They're not ready. Jesus then speaks directly and he says, but with all due respect, in verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. And they really didn't. Because you see, by the end of that week, Jesus would be on a cross and there would be one on his right and there would be one on his left. And it would not be this glorious picture. It would be this, this moment of horror, this moment of suffering, this moment of pain. I've often said to myself that I love Jesus' candor. You and I tend to finesse things and we beat around the bush, but Jesus went directly to her and says, you don't know what you're asking. And aren't you glad? I am glad. I hope you're glad that many times we get on our knees and we say, please, 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 Jesus. I am so glad Jesus doesn't answer all my prayers because I don't know what I'm asking, and you don't know what you're asking. And then Jesus asks the question, which is our question today. And it's a very important question. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? He directs the question now, not at Mrs. Zebedee. He's looking in the eyes of James and John, and he says, tell me, fellas, are you able are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And of course you know what the cup means, right? The cup. He's speaking metaphorically about a time that is coming when he will, he will face his reason for coming into this world. And I was reading again in the end of Matthew where Jesus is kneeling in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What kind of cup? It's a cup of sorrow. It's a cup of wrath. It's a cup of judgment. Because you see, Jesus came into the world to save the likes of the Ray Hiltons of this world. Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and me. And he would stand in the place of judgment where you and I should, have, should stand. And he would bear the penalty of our sin. And so, yes, the cup a cup of sorrow, a cup of shame, a cup of suffering. Are you willing to drink this cup? And of course, with blind bravado, 
They said, of course, Lord, we're able. Yes, we can. Dr. Dale Bruner is very helpful in his commentary on this passage, and he observed that there are two great temptations that blind Christian leaders, causing us to think more of ourselves than we should. But I would open the door up a little bit wider. There are two great temptations facing all leaders, and those two temptations are pride and ambition. And as people, as human beings, we must pray daily. And I don't know what your station in life is. I don't know what your leadership responsibilities are. You might be at home leading children. You might be working in areas of great responsibility, but you need to pray this prayer. All of us must pray this, this adaptation of the Lord's prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil ladder-climbing ambitions. For yours is the kingdom. It doesn't belong to us. Yours is the glory. It's never and will never be about us. And we must pray that we don't succumb to the, to the lies of ambition. And then Jesus says something very solemn, very prophetic to her two sons in verse 23. He says, you will indeed drink my cup. Did they even know what he was saying when he said that? So here's a Bible trivia question for all of you Bible scholars out there. Do you know what happened to Mrs. Zebedee's sons? Do you remember what happened to them? Look at this passage. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, about that time, King Herod, not Herod the Great, but one of Herod's sons, laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. And now we're talking about the church in Antioch, a church that was growing in leaps and bounds, and King Herod didn't like that. And so Peter and James had come down from Jerusalem to see what was going on, and he took that moment to grab James, and he had him killed with the sword. James drank from that cup. And then what happened to John, the other brother? We don't know with certainty how he died, but one thing we do know, that of the 12 disciples, John was the one who lived the longest. He lived to that ripe old age, but he also suffered throughout his time. And one place we could go for that is to look at Revelation 1 and verse 9. Take a look at this passage where he writes to the seven churches, I, John, your brother who share with you, now watch this, your brother who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance was on the island called Patmos. And I just want to be sure you understand that this is not some island in the Caribbean with all-inclusive and all the drinks and all the good food. No, this was an island where the Romans would banish people as a form of 
imprisonment. Why? Because John was clinging to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and he drank the cup and he suffered for it. And my brothers and sisters of National Presbyterian Church, I want you to know that these words of Jesus are for us too. We will drink that cup. And if you follow Jesus into the boat, as we heard last week, you may encounter storms. If you follow Jesus into the world, if you follow him into the marketplace, if you take him with you into your neighborhoods, I want you to know that you should and will experience challenges. And Christians in places like Yemen, and Christians in places like Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iran, Christians all over the world, this is their norm. This is their experience day after day. They're drinking the cup and they're suffering indignities and losses, loss of life, loss of property because they are clinging to the name of Jesus and they will not deny him. This passage is for us. Jesus says to James and John, you will drink the cup, but to sit on my right, to sit on my left, this is not mine to grant, fellas, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. So the message of Jesus to us today is, as we follow him, our concern is not with position. Praise God if you're president off. Praise God if you are prime minister off, your dean off, you are the CEO off. Praise God for all that, but, but we're not going to be defined by our positions. We're not going to clamor for the best seats. Instead, no matter where you are, no matter what station you have in life, our calling is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the virtues of humility and selflessness and love and I would say to you this morning that these kingdom values, these ideas of Jesus stand in sharp contrast to the values and the ideas of our world. In the kingdom of God, it goes something like this. If you want to go up, you have to go down. That if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. That if you want to receive, you must give. When your enemies hate you, the values of the kingdom tells us to love our enemies. There are two ways to live then. One reflects the values and the realities of what God calls us to do in order to live a life that is flourishing in the world. But the other is a set of values and ideas that come from this world and wants us to seek glory without the cross. How are these ideas influencing us even today? Are we being influenced by the way of King Jesus or are we being influenced by the American way of living? In 1948, the late American philosopher Richard Weaver wrote a seminal, seminal work that has reverberated out through all kinds of philosophical and theological thinking. He wrote the book, Ideas and the Values We Hold Have Consequences. They have the power to shape our ethical, moral, and religious life. And I want to give you four examples of how ideas and values can shape how we live and think and act and react to the world around us. Three Germans 
and one American, the first German, and you don't need to remember these dates, but the first German lived from 1844 to 1900, and he explored the massive philosophical themes, themes that permeate, themes that are in the water that you and I drink to this day that is still influencing Western culture. He was the one who started exploring themes like nihilism, the Latin word for nothing, no truth, no knowledge. He explored themes concerning the death of God, that we are not answerable to anything that or anyone that is transcendent in the universe. We're not accountable to a God. And then he wrote about the will to power. This German was called Friedrich Nietzsche. The second German I want to list for you, again, lived from 1889 to 1945, and many scholars to this day debate the extent to which Nietzsche's ideas influenced this man's religious and political views, how he viewed the world, how he related to people. But this German, depending on who you read, either used or distorted or misunderstood some of Nietzsche's ideas like the death of God and the will to power, and he plunged the world into a bloodbath that we call the Second World War. And he orchestrated the extermination of six million Jews, and of course I'm referring to Adolf Hitler. But there's a third German. He lived through the years 1906 to 1945. He was an ethicist, a pastor. He taught an entirely different vision of reality and life in the world. This man's theological writings and reflections emphasized the significance of the cross in the life of a Christian. He, I, he highlighted the, the idea of costly discipleship. In fact, he wrote a book about that called The Cost of Discipleship and the Call to Follow Jesus. And he famously said that when God calls a man, when God calls a woman, he bids them to come and die. He coined the phrase cheap grace. He taught that Christians must embrace the cross and participate in Christ's suffering as a way of experiencing true transformation and discipleship. That is countercultural thinking. And when his turn came, he drank the cup. And he was ultimately hanged by Hitler's killing machine for treason. And of course, I'm referring to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But there's an American in this mix who lived from 1897 to 1963. He was an influential Christian pastor, preacher, author of numerous books. He was the one who coined the phrase, glory without the cross, glory without the cross, and I think that's what Mrs. Zebedee was hoping for for her boys, or at least the boys hoped for that. They wanted to get to the glory, but, but somehow get around the cross. And through this man's preaching and writings, he highlighted the danger of seeking worldly success and recognition and prosperity void of embracing self-sacrifice and humility and the cross of Jesus Christ. He exemplified, he emphasized rather the importance of maintaining a genuine relationship with God, not a transactional relationship, but a genuine relationship with God rather than pursuing worldly achievements for the sake of personal glory. Who is this person? 
His full name is Aiden Wilson Tozer. Many of us know him as A.W. Tozer. I'm suggesting to you this morning that Dr. Weaver was correct, that ideas and values have consequences, and they have the power to shape our lives and the world and how we treat others. And let me just give you a few modern-day examples of how these big enlightenment ideas are still shaping us today. You and I live among them. Our children breathe it in. We see it on the TV screen. We drink it in the water, how these ideas are influencing us, and it's influencing the church in the West. For example, I think about this young politician, and I say this with no schadenfreude. I say this, this young man could have been my son. I say this with sorrow. This young politician who, like Icarus, flew too close to the sun. His waxed wings melted from the heat of media scrutiny. And this young politician plummeted back to the earth faster than his flight, his brief flight into the sky. This young politician won a seat in the halls of Congress, but not long after taking his seat, Various news sources started exposing him for building his life and his political campaign on embellishments and falsehoods and fantasies and lies and a deck of cards. Through the lens of Jesus' ethics, we would say, we could say that he sought glory without the cross. He wanted to get there without paying the price. He exerted Nietzsche's will to power by any means necessary. And in his world, we could say that the ends justified the means. Another example we could think of is the rise of artificial intelligence and how students today are using artificial intelligence to write their papers turning it into their professors, turning it into their teachers, and claiming that this is my original work. I've read in Christianity Today magazine that even some pastors are using artificial intelligence to write their sermons. They want to sound erudite. They, wanna, they want the glory without the labor and the pain of studying. Over the last few years, in my pastoral work, I've encountered people who have lost quite significant sums. In some cases, I have heard of people losing their entire retirement savings because they speculated with cryptocurrencies. I'm sure there is something noble about this, this form of investment, but many people who dove into it, they did it in order to double and triple their, their investment like this. They wanted to get rich very quickly instead of, like many of us, putting a dollar away saving, carefully giving and saving those resources. You say, well, where did that come from? Well, again, these ideas of getting to the goal, getting to glory as quickly as possible, it's been with us for years and years and years. One could argue that it actually came right out of the garden when the serpent said to the man and the woman, you can be like God right now. And then from the world of athletics, athletes desperate for speed, 
power, muscles, endurance, endorsement, fame. Do not hesitate to cut corners by ingesting performance-enhancing drugs to dominate their opponents. They too want the glory without the cross. And it's happening in the church. I'm telling you, it's in the church that we are affected by these culture-shaping ideas. We want the power of prayer, especially when we're in an emergency. We want to lift up that prayer to God, and we want God to answer immediately. We want intimacy with God without spending time with God. We want a, a growing, successful church without any changes in my life, please. We want morally and spiritually strong children without any kind of modeling in the home. We leave it up to the church to do it. We want knowledge of Scripture without having to read the Bible. We want the glory without the cross. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to think long and hard before you sign up to be a follower of Jesus. If you've lost your vision for Jesus, I want you to take a look again on the cost of discipleship. Jesus is saying to disciples, he's saying to us this morning, that if you truly follow me, you will drink the cup that I drink. Because the Christian life is a cruciform life. It is a life of sacrifice. We're called by God to give our time and our talents and our resources in service to God. We're called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in due course, God will lift us up. And so the kingdom of God advocates a way of life that clashes with the values of this world. Are you ready for that? Is that how you want to live? Those who want to be great must first learn to be humble. Jesus' kingdom is advanced by humble service, not by grasping, not by clinging, not by tearing down others to get to where you need to be. This was Jesus' point. And we didn't read the rest of the text, but that's why Jesus took a child and put that child in their midst and said to the disciples, do not live like the way you see those Gentile rulers doing their thing. If you're going to be in my kingdom... If you're going to be part of my kingdom, I want you to be like this little child. The simplicity, the humility, and the love, and the childlikeness of a true believer, that's what I want from you. And so he chided not only those two disciples, but he chided the rest of the disciples, and he said to them, it must not be so among you. Whoever wishes to be great... And I don't think Jesus is against being great. We need to do great things for the kingdom of God, write great books, run great businesses, lead great churches. Whoever wishes to be great, though, among you must be your servant. And this is where Robert Greenleaf coined that phrase, servant leadership. That's what we need in the churches. That's what we need in the halls of government, in our business communities, in the home Great leadership comes out of being a servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be, and the Greek word there is the word literally slave, be your servant. 
And just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20 and verse 28. This week I sat in the middle of the sanctuary and up front this chancel was transformed into a, the surface of the moon. And the kids were here filling up our pews and every day, Monday to the end of the program on Friday, they were memorizing a Bible verse. And I don't know if as adults we still do that. Do you still commit to memory those verses that speak deeply to your life? Let me tell you why you should do that. These big ideas foisted by Nietzsche and Hitler and so many others, they're in the water. They shape how we think. And the Bible says that the way to be transformed is by renewing our minds. And I would encourage you to commit to memory, as the kids were doing all week, Matthew 20 and verse 28. Let me read it again for you. Just as the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is true greatness. That's the value to which Jesus wants us to hold. That's the value by which Jesus wants us to live. So which idea is shaping your life? Is it the cup or is it the quest for the seat of power? Is it success by any means necessary? Do you live by the credo, the end justified, the ends justify the means? Or is it the idea of greatness through serving others? Here's why that's so important. We have one life to live, and it will soon be gone. And that old songwriter says, and I'm turning to the choir, that old songwriter says, one life to live, and it will be soon be gone. Only what's done for Christ will last. So you built a great company. You built a profitable business. You led a great church. You wrote a great book. And that is wonderful. I'm sure it's going to make a difference in the world. But you've got to ask yourself, only what's done for Christ will last. And if you want to be great, if you want to hear those words of Jesus at the end of your days, well done, good and faithful servant, then it's not too late to switch allegiances. It's not too late to get your mind wrapped around this massive kingdom of God that will endure forever. And it starts with Jesus. Lord, I give you my life. I pick up the cross and I follow you. I give my life in service and surrender to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen. Amen.